Hey, this is John Morgan. I'm the lead pastor here at Word of Life Church in the nation's capital. I want to personally thank you for taking time out to listen to our podcast today. It's our prayer that you're inspired and that your life is changed for the better while listening. So go ahead, enjoy today's message. But I'm going to read to you out of Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. Joshua 1, verse 9 says this, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I'm preaching a message today called The Impending Danger of AI. Before we get into that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that it's alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray, God, that it gets into our life and penetrates and brings supernatural change from the inside out. I pray that we leave better today than when we came in. We join our faith and we believe that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Someone turn to your neighbors, you take a seat and say, I can't even spell AI. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but you've been motivated by the words of somebody else. Maybe it was their affirmation or their encouragement or their intentional empowerment. It may have been a pastor. It may have been a leader. It may have been a teacher at school. It may have been a parent. It may have been a coach on a team. It may have been a motivational speaker that you listened to, but there was something in that that motivated you to go way beyond where you thought you could go to jump higher than you thought you could jump to run faster than you thought you could run to be bigger than you thought you could be to be better than you thought you could be. The Bible says that life is in the power of the tongue. In other words, our our words have the ability to bring life into a situation. And so it may have been the words of a parent that encouraged you to take that first step or the words of a coach that told you, you know, that you can run faster or that you can do better. Maybe it was the words of a pastor that encouraged you to press into the things of God, but but there is something compelling uh, and when when words are created to bring power into situations. Passionate and motivating words of affirmation, verbal content that's constructed in such a way that it empowers the we can, we will, we must, we are able attitude inside of us and lifts us up to levels that we didn't think that we could achieve and gives us an attitude that we never thought we could have. There are famous speeches that have been given over the years. Uh, so Winston Churchill is famous for his motivational words. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields, in the streets. We shall fight in the hills and we shall never surrender. In August of 28 of 1963, here in Washington, D.C., uh, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I have a dream speech. A, a speech that has motivated generations, a, a speech that still should reverberate inside every one of us to be better than we've ever been and to love more than we've ever loved and to be in a greater sense of unity. He said, 
I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they'll not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Words that motivate us. We, we, you know, there are a lot of sports movies and different movies that, that have come up and they'll use that. I, I don't know if you saw the movie Braveheart, William Wallace on his horse with his face painted blue for war, trying to motivate a whole heap of men that were willing to run and willing to quit. And at the end of his speech, he says that they may take our lives, but what? They will never take our freedom. There's just something that reverberates in our heart to lift us up, to go way beyond. These are words of life. Joshua chapter 1 is God's motivational speech to a new generation the Joshua generation, the generation that had come up after Moses' generation and the generation that, that God had ordained to go in to the promised land despite the giants, despite the difficulty, and to take on the promises that God had for them, to break out of the tyranny of Egypt and to break out of the past that their parents had lived under and to rise up as a new generation and be more than they'd ever thought that they could be. And God motivates them. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all his people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea towards the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Be strong and courageous for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them only. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you to do. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. Everyone say prosperous. And then you'll have good success. Everyone say success. I have, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. 
this rallying cry, this motivational decree, this declaration of the favor of Jehovah was designed specifically to infuse this next new uprising, up, up and coming, should I say, generation to have a, if God before us, who can be against us attitude. It's that, it's that speech that opened the door for them to live in the sweet spot of victory. And that's exactly where they lived. In chapter two, they send spies into Jericho, a fortified city, big army. They spend, send a couple of spies in there. Go and check it out. Come and bring back a report. When the spies came back, they said, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. So they go and check it out. They come back out and they go, man, we got a good report. Like they're terrified of us. Word spread about how awesome we are. There's fear in them. Their hearts melt because of who we are. They are motivated beyond measure. Chapter three and chapter four, they cross over the Jordan River and God lives up to his promise as I was with Moses. I'm gonna be with you. And they cross over on dry land. Such a huge miracle and so exciting that they, they put down pillars of, of, of memorial posts down there saying we never wanna forget this moment. This was so awesome. We saw the miracle hand of God. In chapter five, they dedicate a new generation to serving God. They celebrate the first Passover. God shows up personally and speaks to them in a theophany. And in chapter six, they have victory over Jericho. They come to the city with impenetrable walls, so huge, so big, so thick that the walls are saying, you can't get in here. You can't have big, everything about the natural situation said you can't win. But everything about God's motivational speech in Joshua chapter one said, you can do it. Don't be scared of that. God gave them a strategy and the walls crumbled and they took ground and they had absolute victory. Israel is on a roll and they have huge success, momentum, and then they come to chapter seven. And this is what it says in verse two. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth Haven, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are a few. So they're about to attack the city, and they had no idea of the impending danger of Ai. For every guest today, we want to give you microchips. I have a packet of Lay's microchips here. I'm not sure if we can get that on the camera. Can we use that sim? Listen. There it is. So if you're a first time guest and you want some Lay's microchips. You can go to your friends at work tomorrow. Sack, past is crazy. He's giving away microchips. 
We've added up the numerical. No, don't go there. Joshua chapter 7 says, don't have all the people go up there. They've got this word here that, that, listen, we've just had this great victory in Jericho. AI, it's going to be a cakewalk. Easy, easy victory. AI is a small population. I only have about 12,000 people there. They're not strong people. The city's not fortified. There are nothing in comparison to Jericho. We are the champion team. They, they are, they're the losing team. It'd be a little bit like having a game of football and Israel are the Kansas City Chiefs and AI are the Hawaii Rainbow Warriors. It's not even a fair fight. They're not even encouraged to try. Look what he says. Do not have all the people go up. Don't, don't send everybody. We don't need to, we don't need to exhaust people, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack AI. Do not make the whole people toil up there for they are but a few. You know, when you're on the winning team and your team is just destroying the other team and victories in sight, most winning teams will pull off their best players and put on the B team. We don't even have to try anymore. We have so much victory. Let's throw the B team in. And that's sort of what happened with Israel here. They had this massive victory over Jericho, these walls. AI seems like a, an easy win for them. So let's not even try to do that. Even the name of the city, AI, is not that impressive. It means a heap of ruins. So they're this lean mean, God-ordained fighting machine up against this little group of people who are called a heap of ruins and they don't even try. But what should have been an easy victory ended up becoming an absolute humbling defeat. Verse 4, it's about 3,000 men went up there from the people and they fled before the men of Ai and the men of Ai killed about 36. So even... When the AI army attacked back, they didn't even take out too many, just a few dozen. Killed about 36 uh, of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shabaram and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted, this is Israel, and became as water. Now, a defeat can come when you're going up against an opposition that is just simply better than you. In 1960, Africa was not far removed from colonial rule and much of the world didn't take uh, the newly independent country seriously, and especially when it came to athletics. The 1960 Olympic Games in Rome. In the marathon, an Ethiopian, Abibi Bikila, ran in the marathon and he was selected to compete. He was a poor villager who'd become a guard. His dad was a shepherd. When he ran the marathon, he ran on cobblestones in bare feet. Everything was against him. No one thought that he would win. But not only did he win gold, he broke the world record. Four years later in Tokyo, no one had ever had a repeat of victories in marathons in Olympic history. But he came back and he competed in the marathon. 
Not only did he compete, but just a few weeks earlier, prior to the marathon, he'd had an appendix operation. Now, that may not matter too much to young people in here today. You had your appendix out, modern technology. They put a little hole in here, pop your appendix out. But in the 60s, man, they carved half your stomach out. You're like 95 stitches and a bow at the end of it like that. He'd had, he'd had his appendix out not long before. In fact, when he got to Tokyo to run, he was walking with a limp. They, they didn't think he'd be able to, he didn't even train leading up to the marathon. And not only did he win, but by the 22nd mile mark, he was 2.5 miles ahead of every other runner. He was just simply better than everybody else. And so you can't compete on that. And defeat can come if you underestimate the greatness of your opposition. Like if you just, if you just think, man, I, 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 you can, I, I was in Singapore. I like to play squash. It's like racquetball. Squash, they have some courts down here, the St. James. I like squash. I'm, I'm a bit of a hack. I'm not a great player. But, but in Singapore, I was playing some youth passes, and I was crushing their soul. I was winning, which I really like. I really, to be honest, I love, I love winning. Greg and I are like, it's not a competition. Yeah, everything's a competition. Last night, he was at my house, and we were putting up little gates for his son because he now can crawl and go anywhere, putting up little gates that were down from our stairwells. We're putting the gates up and, and we were racing to put the gates up. Everything's a comp. So I'm in Singapore and I'm playing squash and I am crushing the spirit of these youth pastors and the young, I'm winning every game. I get to the end of the game and there's a young guy about 15, 16 years of age milling around doing some stuff. And he's like, Pastor John, can I have a run? Can I, can I play with you? I'm like, sure, young man. Did you play with the... Right. And so we, we come on, 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 on the court and started playing. And this kid won 9-0, I was not, not only was I not scoring, but he's got me running everywhere. I'm sweating. I'm just like this ball of sweat. This guy, this guy was hitting the ball so hard that the ball would come towards him and he'd go like this and the ball would go, like as, as it came toward, he was just, he was just that good. I, I'd underestimated. And then I got off the court and they said, hey, they introduced this guy. He was the Singapore national champion. But when you're better and when everything on paper and off paper says that you will win, you are going to win, and then you don't win, then not only is the defeat humbling, but it begs the question, why did we lose? Why do we not have the victory? And they went into the battle unaware of the impending danger of this city of AI. In reality, there should have been absolutely, categorically, emphatically zero danger of Israel going in to this fight with AI. But verse 6 says, And Joshua tore his clothes, fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. What's the Bible saying? Joshua is just like, how do we lose that? He's like, I, I, I don't, I don't, that doesn't fit the plan. Lord, this is not what we talked about. This is like really a, a divergence of where I thought we were heading. I'm not coping with this, Joshua said, alas, O Lord, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that 
We have been content to dwell beyond the joy. In other words, he's saying, God, why did you bring us here? We might as well just stay back there. And if you know your Bible, that's exactly what Moses' generation said. Why did you bring us out here into the wilderness to die? We would have been better back in Egypt eating leeks and onions. You know you're in a bad situation when leeks and onions, it's right up there with kale, sounds good. But this is what Joshua was saying. Why did, why did you bring us? Well, this, like, like, why did you let this happen? How, how, did, how did this, Joshua's like, this makes absolutely no sense. What, ab, what about the big motivational speech in chapter one? What about that everywhere your foot will tread thing? What, what about that be strong and courageous? Be, be bold. I'm giving you the, the, the territory. What, what about all of that? Now, listen, let me tell you, you, you want to have that in your pocket in life. You, you don't want to run on a God told me if God didn't told you. You want some, to be some tolding. If God tells you, to, when, when, when Anna and I, uh, before we came here, you, most of you would be aware of the story. We prayed for like 10 years. God, what do you want us to do? And we went to God and we said, God, either give us a city or give us a building. Give us a city and drop the city in our spirit. And she gets it and I get it. We both get the same city. We get a city. We'll go and plan a church there. Drop in, whatever you want to do. God, Waikiki, something like that. I mean, no, faith without hints is dead. We're, we're, we're trying to, we're trying to, God, give us a city. Why? Because I know how difficult it is to pioneer a church. And I want to run on a God told me I don't want to go on a I felt like it. And when it gets difficult, I want to be able to go to God like Joshua's going to God and saying, hey, I, I, I was doing this on your word. We ask God to either give us a city or give us a building. We put some parameters about what we wanted God to, to do or we would believe God's. And so when this came, it was a God breathing on this moment. We've had two great years here. It's been awesome, but we're probably going to face some difficult times at some point. And I want to be able to go back to God and say to God, God, I didn't ask to come here. You sent me here. God, I, I didn't make this happen out of my flesh. God, you made this happen out of your spirit. When you got a word from God, you can fight. Paul said to Timothy, fight the good warfare through the prophecies made concerning you. So if you're going to go on a God told me, you better make sure that God did the tolding. And this is what Joshua is doing. He's going to God, oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? In other words, this does not add up. The armies of Israel that should be brave and should be courageous and have been promised success and have been promised prosperity are running like scared people. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off your name from the earth. And what will, and what will you do for your great name? I, I love this arm twisting of Joshua. Hey, look, our name's going to be messed up. But Lord, what are you going to do about your great name? People are going to be criticizing you. This is, this is not good for the brand. This is not good for the Jehovah Brown. This is not good for your name. God, that, like, that is a pretty good motivational speech in chapter one, but this is not, look, you're not going to be getting calls from Anthony Robbins or John Maxwell to do some, it's not going to work like that. It's not good for your name. And then God responded to Joshua's whining. The Lord said to Joshua, get up, 
<laughs> Why have you fallen on your face? Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Here's the problem. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. Remember God said, "Do my, obey my words and then I'm going to be with you. Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant I made with them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They were defeated before they went in. They turned their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have taken away the devoted things from among you. The impending danger at AI was not a result of AI's powerful army. It was a result of Israel's loss of power. AI didn't become more powerful. Israel became power less because they were disobedient. They had lost the battle before the battle even began. It says that in verse 1 of chapter 7, the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. Right at the end it says, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Now this, these, this statement, the devoted things, is not something you hear a lot about in church. The Hebrew word is harem, H-E-R-E-M. It means to be separated. The Arabic word harem, where they separated ladies for the king and had a harem in a separate area, is a derivative of that word. Harem means that it is separated for God's use, and it's different than the word holy. The application is different than holy. That also means to be separated. The difference between holy is like in Romans chapter 12, where God asks us to live our life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. We separate our life to him. That there is an act of worship because you and I make a decision. We're going to give God our life as an offering. And so it becomes holy. We bring our offerings in. They are holy because we're separating that for God. We make the choice. Harem, it's not, there's no choice. In harem, God says, that's a devoted thing for destruction. That's mine. Don't touch it. It's not a bargaining chip for you. I said, I own it. It's mine. All the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So anything you get, you get from him. And God says, that there I'm not giving to you. That there is mine. It's harem. It's separated for me. And you don't get to touch that in any way, shape, or form. Joshua chapter 6, verse 6. Of 17 says, and the city and all that is within it, talking about Jericho, shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. So before they went into the fight, God had told Israel, you're going to conquer the city. You're going to take the spoils. But I want to tell you, everything in it is mine. Don't hold anything for yourself. Don't, don't keep anything back. You don't have the right to bargain on that Jericho and everything in it is declared harem. 
everything in that city, all the possessions of the victory is going to be an offering to the Lord. And so when God speaks to Joshua and says there's sin in the camp, it leads to an investigation. Verse 18, he brought near his household man by man and Achan, the son of Kamri, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken. Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now, what have you done? Do not hide it from me. Achan answered Joshua, truly I've sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I did. When I saw the spoil of a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels and I coveted them and took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. In the scope of the victory at Jericho, this, this coat and some cash had to seem like such a small thing. We're conquering this major fortified city, all the spoils. And Achan takes a, a, a coat and some cash. And it must have been justified in his head like, this is not a big thing. Look at all, look at all the other stuff dedicated to God. God is not going to miss it. I can take it. But what God, uh, Achan had touched, God had declared, Haram, this is mine. In other words, you, you can make all the excuses that you want, but if God says it's his, it's his. If God says, that, that's mine, don't touch it, then your only response should be, do not touch it because that's God's. It's harem. It's separated for God. Achan's act was a snub to everything that God had promised Joshua in chapter 1. Joshua's like, if you be obedient, and God said it multiple times. If you be obedient, you do what I tell you to do. If you follow my ways, if you don't question my ways, if you just have blind to be, just do it. Then you're going to have good success. If you do it, you're going to prosper. If you do it, you're going to have victory. If you do it, I'm going to be with. But make sure that you do according to all that is written therein. Do what I tell you to do and don't try to make up your own rules. Ananias and Sapphira brought something to God that God had declared harem. Achan's sin is similar to that. He just made a decision when God says, don't touch it, that is mine. There are four bad thoughts that were created, the, uh, the defeat at AI, and they're simply this. Who will this hurt? It, it, it feels right to me. Uh, it's not that big a deal. And who's going to know? Four thoughts that created the impending danger at AI. And here's bad thought number one. Who's this going to hurt? Who is it going to hurt? Achan answered Joshua and said, truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. In verse 1 of chapter 7, it said the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Why? Because of what one man did. Nothing that you do in isolation. Well, let me rephrase that. I can't say nothing. What you do in isolation is not guaranteed to stay in isolation. Your actions are going to impact somebody. Achan's sin impacted the whole nation. 
The whole nation came under the departure of God's hand because of his sin. And they lost the battle because no decision that you make is done disconnected from impacting somebody else. If you're in school right now, work hard. Study hard. I know what you think. Play around the school. Don't really try. Just breeze through. No, give it your best. Why? Because your education matters. If you're in college, give it your best. Why? Because your education matters. Well, I don't know if I need it. You may not need it right now, but you're going to need it when you have children. And your ability to get a high-paid, high-quality job when you're an adult is going to have an impact on your children. If you've grown up in poverty, if you've grown up in difficulty, then determine in your heart not to stay there as an adult and get yourself out of there. Why? Because you think you're better than everybody else? No, but you want to set your children up for success. And the decisions that you make now when you have no children are going to determine the success of your children when you do have children. And when you have children and you ignore me and they're asking you for something that you can't give them because you ignored me, you're going to remember, I should have listened to Morgan. Our children and our children's children should be able to live in the blessings that we provide for them. And so you maybe you're an adult and you're like, bro, that's way too late for me. I'm, I'm, I'm grown and my kids are young adults now. Well, if you couldn't do it for you, do it for them and encourage them to go way beyond. The Bible says that the, a, a good man leaves inheritance for his children's, we think generationally, that's how we're going to start to think. And so we need to be thinking above the moment. E- even, even things that you do, Try to avoid as many dumb things if you're young. Try to avoid things like getting arrested, dumb stuff, because it's going to impact you later. When you, when you get older, you start to feel all the sports injuries you had when you were younger. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Some kind of, when, when I was 10, I broke my thumb in a game of football, I can do this little wiggly thing here. I, I, I crashed into the post and snapped my thumb, broke my thumb. Now, all these years later, I'm working at a gym and I give it a bit of a jar and, and, and that injury from all those years ago has come back to haunt me. I thought it got healed years ago. Why are you back? Because the decisions that we make will live on, beyond. And, and I'll, I'll finish this point on this thought. Because to me, I think about our society, and, and just to be honest with you, it, it's frightening to me that so many of our lawmakers and educators and, and lobby groups and people who by nature hate me saying anything like this. Because the church dealt with that in the 70s. In the, ch- in the church of the 70s said, don't sleep around. As, as pornography got into magazines and became easy to get, don't, don't, don't get into that. And everyone snubbed their face at the church and told us we were bigots and we were stupid and we don't know anything. And then it raised its ugly head years later and became the result of the Me Too movement. No sin that you do is not going to 
stayed there. It's going to have an impact on someone. And I'm watching right now what's happening in society, and they are making calls on the lives of our children that are seriously going to impact their lives in the future. And some of the calls that they're making, and they're angry at us about saying it's the wrong call, it's not only going to impact our children. Have you considered that it could impact our children so much that many of them won't be able to have children? Bad thought number two. If it feels right to me, then I should be able to do it. Achan said, I, I, I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Sheena and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. And then I coveted them and took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Achan crumbled where most people crumble. I, I saw it. I coveted it. I took it. I hid it. I saw it. Adam and Eve saw the tree. They, they noticed it. I, 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 I coveted it. It looked good for food. It was pleasing to the eye. It was desirable to make one wise. One John talks about the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. It's not from the Father. It's from the world. What is he saying? I, I, I deserve that. I, I, I want that. And so I took it. I saw it. I wanted it. So I just took it. They saw the tree. They, they, they desired it. They took the fruit and they ate. I took it. Who's going to miss it? Who's going to notice it? It's the problem we always get ourselves into. The devil doesn't do anything new. It's the same temptation that's always been there. Adam and Eve are going to see it. They're going to want it. They're going to take it. They're going to hide it. They saw the tree. They, they took the fruit. They ate the fruit. They, they felt guilty and then they hid. Achan saw it. I like that. Covenant, I want that. Took it, I've got that. Hit it, I don't want anybody to know it's there. And that same process happens to us. The devil's not a creator. He can't back into some, you know, cauldron that he created like thousands of years ago and be like, hubble, bubble, boil and trouble and come out with some brand new potion that you've never seen before and then like dump it on you and you're like, oh, this has never happened. No, he's going to come at no temptation has come upon you except that which is common. Bad thought number three, it's not that big a deal. Joshua 7 verse 21, I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and some shekels of silver and some shekels of gold. It's not really, really that when you, when you, when you take this little bit out and you put it into the context of everything you got, it's not, not that big a deal. But the Bible says it's the little things that take us out. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15, catch the foxes for us. The little foxes that spoil the vineyards. It's the little foxes that spoil the vine. It's often not the big things that take someone out. It's the big impact of the repetitive nature of little things that are so small you don't think anybody's going to notice but the small things grow. Even the giant Goliath from Gath was once upon a time the baby Goliath from Gath. 
At one point, he could be held in someone's arms and needed the help of somebody else before he grew into a giant that would intimidate armies. It's the little things that take us out and cause you to lose the big battle. It's just a little, it's, it's like the old, old adage, how do you eat an elephant? Just one bite at a time. It's overwhelming, so you just take one bite at a time. That's how, the, that's how the devil works on you. He just works one little thing after the other. He very rarely so jumps out from behind a, a, a wall somewhere with his horns and his tail and his pitchfork and, you know, fire, <laughs> you know, and start. No, he doesn't. He just comes out subtle. He just looks so, it looks pleasing to the eye. Desire, that's how the enemy works. You have to take care of the little foxes, the little things. You've got to take care of them before they take care of of you. Little things like, like a little bad company. Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So you got to, a little bit, it's not, they're not completely bad, but there's a little bit of bad in there and, and it's contagious. It's contagious. It's contagious. Every generation that I know of is exactly the same. We want to be unique. When I was in high school in Melbourne, the skinheads were big. You'd shave your head back, skinheads, and, some, and then later they'd spike their hair up. Why did they do that? Because they wanted to be unique. I don't want to be like everybody else. And you were uniquely, exactly like everybody else that did that. Because you become a result of who you hang out with. That's why the Bible says, the righteous should choose their friends carefully. The way of the wicked lead them astray. If you walk with the wise, you grow wise. The companion of fool suffers harm. Do not be deceived. The Bible says bad company ruins good morals. They may, may, may be a friend and, and, and a comrade at the moment, but I want to tell you, a little bad company is not always helpful. A little laziness. Proverbs 6 says, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. It's too easy to give ourselves permission to be lazy and not to try hard or work hard. But the Bible says just a little bit of laziness, a little bit of sleep, a little bit of slumber, a little bit of folding of the hands. It says has a major impact. Poverty will come upon you like an armed man, like a robber. It's going to take from you. And I think that every one of us should rest, but that's very, very different than being lazy. The Bible says if you don't work, you don't. If you don't work, you don't. It's the messy sink syndrome. It's the messy sink syndrome. I don't know if you've ever seen this at home, but you've got your kitchen sink. And it's empty, all nice and clean. You've got one glass that's now dirty, and you have a choice. I either leave it in the sink, or I put it in the dishwasher. If I don't have a dishwasher, I wash it, and I put it away in the cupboard. If you put it in the dishwasher, or you wash it and put it in the cupboard, the sink normally will stay clean. But just one glass in the sink gives the next person permission to put their glass 
in the sink that gives the next person the permission to put their plate in the sink and then their pot in the sink and then their silverware in the sink and then everything and their pots start to go. And now the sink is everyone else is waiting for someone else to load the dishwasher. But it started with giving permission with one little thing. It's the little foxes that spoil. It's just a little bit of, of laziness. They found in society that if somebody graffitis a wall and they come out and they paint over the graffiti and put the wall back to its original color, that they're highly unlikely that that wall will continue to be graffitied. But if someone graffitis the wall and no one touches it, it gives the next person permission to put their graffiti on it and again and again and again till the wall is destroyed. And it started out because no one could be bothered to remove the one little piece of graffiti. It's the little foxes that spoil the vine. It's a, it's a little negative chatter. Bible says in James chapter three, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. A tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set amongst the members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. James is saying, your tongue is tiny, but the words are powerful. So for the love of all things holy, guard the little member of the tongue. Don't gossip. Don't lie. Don't slander. Don't backbite. Don't be a whiner. Don't be always negative. Don't be always finding something negative. Do you have friends like that? I don't because we just don't get on because I'm going to like, shut your mouth. Why are you whining? Why are you? Sometimes I have to tell my mouth, myself, shut your mouth. If I'm sitting on that freeway trying to get back to Alexandria and they got all that traffic backing up on the bridge going into, you know, you know what I'm talking about? We all know because we live here. And you're in the traffic and you're like, Meh. hate this traffic. Yeah, but you're sitting in a car. Some people overseas who don't have a car and got to walk everywhere, they'd be like, oh, God, please give me traffic. You're in there whining in your air-conditioned car, listening to the music on Spotify, worshiping God which is dangerous when you're in your car. That's why they put those little bumps on the side of the road. They tell you when you're in, you know, talk about the little bumps. They're so you can close your eyes and worship and drive in Braille. That's why that's there. Don't try that. It's been done by trained professionals. A little foolishness. Dead flies make the perfumers ointment give off a stench. A little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. I can't tell you the amount of times that I've been in conversations where there's been wisdom and honor given in the conversation and the person just rejected it and was foolish. There was a friend of ours in, in uh, California who was going to take on a church and the deal that they constructed for him to take on this church sounded amazing. But there were red flags all along the way. So he asked me about it, and I was like, it sounds really good, but, man, there's so many red flags. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't touch it or I'd get a lot of stuff in writing because it, it's not good. 
So he came to a conference with us and then I got him a meeting with my friend Marcus Meekham, who's got a church of like 10,000 people. And so he ran the idea past Marcus and Marcus said, bro, this is, I know it sounds fantastic, but it's a terrible idea. Don't touch this. He said, it, he said, this is what it's like. He says, like you fell in love and married the most beautiful woman in the whole world. And then you wake up the next morning and you discover she's an ax murderer. He said, don't touch it. It looks great, but it's going to be. And so he ignored all the wisdom of multitudes of counsel and did it anyway. And then six months later, it all fell apart. Everything that we said would happen, happened. Why? Because his folly negated the wisdom he was being given. He came back with this like, like, you know, sort of little sad puppy syndrome to me at this conference. And I said to him, are you anticipated to get some sympathy from me? Because that ain't going to happen. You, 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 you're reaping your own problem. I'm not even going to give you a hug. And he's just like, you're just going to tell me I told you so? Are you prophesying, bro? Why? Because that's what it's, it's so many people, don't do that. Russell, you can come up with a team. Don't do that. Don't. Anyway, here's thought number four. Thought number four. Who's going to know? Who is going to know? And they are hidden in the earth inside my tent. Who's going to know? How's going to know? Who will this hurt? It feels right to me. It's really not that big a deal. It only seems small. And who is going to know? I hid it so no one can find it. I want to suggest to you today that one of the worst things that we can do as a Christian is to live in a place where we hide our issues. There's a biblical principle that goes something like this. When it's hidden, it gains in power. When it's revealed, the power is released. So God put it like this. He said, listen, when you do good things, shh, don't tell anybody. When you do good things, be real quiet. Don't tell anybody. Say nothing. Just stay silent. Shh. When you, I just need it for a couple of seconds. Thank you. When you, when you, when you do good things, hide it. Why? Because the good thing will gain in power. He says, but as soon as you do a good thing and you let everybody know how good it is, they're going to go, awesome. Congratulations. And you've got your reward. He said, what you're better off doing is not telling anybody the good things and letting them gain momentum and let God reward you. Then God said, but when you sin or you're tempted, confess it. Get it out in the air. Don't hide it. Because if you hide it, it's going to go gain in power. So confess your sins one to another so you can be forgiven and you can get over and it can have no power over you. That's God's way. So God says, good things, bad things, Whoa! but that's not how we live in the church. The good things we tell everybody and the bad things we hide and God says, that's that, yeah, wrong way. So when you're struggling, don't let the struggle destroy you. They would never have lost the battle at AI. Had Achan prior to the battle gone to his tent, got the silver out, 
got the gold out, got the nice cloak out and brought it to Joshua and said, hey, I've touched the devoted things. I've sinned against Israel. I've sinned against God. I've done the wrong thing. Judgment wouldn't have come upon him if he'd bought out his sin. The Bible talks about that being repentance. I'm changing my way. I'm, I'm going to get it out in the open. And the power can go out of that. But Achan did what most of us do when we do something wrong. We hide it in the back. We don't tell anybody about it. We hope God won't notice. No one else will notice. And we can just go on in life. And God says, no, that habit is going to destroy you. That lie is going to take you out. That lifestyle is going to mess with you. That lack of holiness in your life is going to destroy who you are. And God says, "I'm. if you don't get it out, I'm going to open the door and get it out for you. We think when someone's sin gets exposed on the earth, that's just God judging his church. That's not God judging his church. That's God being gracious to his church and letting you deal with the sin so you can overcome it and you can have victory and you don't go to heaven with a bad habit. We think it's God judging sin because that's exactly what we would do if they told us. We'd judge it. God says, don't be like that. Let's get a church where people can deal with things while they're small. Ask yourself, if your friend was Aiken, who'd hid the cloak and taken the gold and done something wrong or had slept with a woman or slept with a man or did something wrong and he'd come to you and said, hey, I'm feeling convicted. This is what I did and I hid it. Would you have the compassion in your life to be able to help them overcome it? And I believe that's what God's called the church to be. That's what God's called the church to be, a place where people can get honest with their struggles and love them enough to get them into their victories.